About a week and a half ago, Wednesday night, November 1st, approximately 17,000 people gathered at Globe Life Field in Arlington to watch a baseball game. What was interesting about this gathering is there were no players in the facility. There's not a game happening on the field, no chance of catching a home run ball. But they were there to watch a ball game. Particularly, they were there to see if they could watch together the Texas Rangers clinch the World Series championship. And they gathered for that purpose in an empty stadium to watch that together on the screen. Now, I've got some friends from college here today who were at Chase Field in Phoenix to watch it happen. We're envious of that. The rest of us were stuck here in Arlington watching it that way. Some of you in this room might have gone out to the stadium to watch that game. Why did all those people gather for a game that wasn't even happening there? They could have stayed home and watched it on a screen. I imagine that these people had a lot of diversity in their backgrounds, not a whole lot in common that would bring them to a facility together. Probably different racial and ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, different political views from different parts of the country and even abroad. Why would they gather to do this? Because they were united in mission. They wanted to see the Texas Rangers beat the Diamondbacks and win the World Series. That was it. I think that might have been the only common thread among those 17,000 people in that facility. I don't have to tell you that we're in a time of deep division. Society is divided. We're polarized. It's hard to identify what any common threads might be. What do we have in common anymore? We are highlighting so many differences. Some of them have always been there, but we're becoming more aware of them. Some of them are new. And unfortunately, the church has not been immune from that. Those divisions then creep into the church, and things that used to hold us together become less important as we let all these things that are different about us, even these things that make us upset about each other, we let those things affect us. And so we're brought today to John chapter 17, where, as you heard in the scripture reading that Lauren read for us, Jesus is praying for unity. This is sort of the end of the farewell discourse. For the last few weeks in John, we've been talking about what scholars call the farewell discourse. Jesus' last words to his closest followers before he leaves them. So he's talked about how to love each other, and he's talked about how to stay connected to each other and to Jesus. Now he is going to pray. And it's a chapter-long prayer in John 17. It's kind of a teaching prayer. In other words, John didn't just record this as an FYI, oh, here's a prayer Jesus prayed. We're supposed to hear it and act on it. This happens a few times in Scripture. Uh, The book of Ezra records Ezra himself praying a prayer of kind of collective repentance to God, but he says it so others can hear and might act on what he says in the prayer. The prayer is not just communication with God, it's teaching for others. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, Peter and John are in danger, and so there's a prayer for them that it's supposed to teach people about God's protection. That's what's happening in John 17. So Jesus prays for himself, that he might be glorified. He prays for his immediate disciples who are gathered around him, that they might be protected. And then he goes on to pray for the next generation following of disciples. 
that they might be one. That's how he starts out this passage. John 17, verse 20, Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, he's just gone through talking about his disciples. That's the their, their message. Everyone who will believe because of their message. That's you and me. We're the ones who believe in Jesus because of the message of these disciples. Because they continue to testify about Jesus. Because some of them wrote books about him. We believe because of their testimony. Jesus is praying for you and for me. We're not some sort of second class disciples because we came later. We are in Jesus' prayer here too. We're on his mind. We're on his heart. In his last moments alive. So he Praise this prayer. And you heard the prayer. Lauren read that for us. And he keeps saying that they would be one. That they would be one. That they would be unified. So I want to talk for a minute about that idea of oneness or unity. What does that mean? The Greek word is just one. It's the number one. You see it over and over again in that passage. It's the same concept in Hebrew where, you know, that famous prayer, the Shema, we call it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. There's something about that number that's kind of theological, that they're one and the same. So even even when you see in John 17 where he says that they might be unified, it's just the word one. There's no special theological word for unity here. It's just the word one, that they might attain oneness. And you may have noticed, as you heard that prayer, that Jesus roots the oneness of his disciples with the oneness of the Trinity. May they be one, Father, as we are one. So there's a a, a Trinitarian root, you might say, to unity, to this oneness. But Jesus knows that if his disciples are going to go out and transform the world, they have to be one first. You can't go out... in a a state of disunity or disarray and expect to have a difference. You can't. But the language I really want to draw your attention to is what he thinks unity will accomplish because that is going to help us think about it together today. He says, may they be one so that the world may believe, and later he says, so that the world may know that God sent Jesus. In other words, unity is a way to testify to the identity of Jesus. That's what unity does. It has a common mission to make Jesus known. So the unity of believers confirms the identity of Jesus to the world. And I know we hear unity talked about a lot in Christian circles. And we try to talk about what it is and what it isn't. So I want to spend a minute today talking about what unity is not. And you're going to recognize some of these things. But it's good to be reminded because if Jesus prays for this and one of the very last things that he does, we should get clear on what he means and what he doesn't mean. So unity is not, and you've probably heard this, it's not any form of unanimity or uniformity. It is not that sort of agreement like David was talking about. That's pretty difficult to imagine us agreeing on everything. Now there are times in Scripture where a different word, a related word, is used, and it does talk about more agreement or acting together. So in Acts chapter 12, Herod goes from Judea to Caesarea. It says he's been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together 
and sought an audience with him. That's more of a word for agreement. Like they all agree on an action and they're going to do it together. Or in Acts 19, on one of Paul's stops, the people seized Paul's traveling companions and all of them rushed into the theater together. The underlying word there, again, has to do with agreement. They're doing this because they agree on a concept and an action. That's a different word. That's not what's going on here. This word shows up a lot in Acts. I think it's a favorite of Luke's for the church. It has to do with joint efforts where they're all agreeing and moving together. So sometimes when we think about unity, we think about the word consensus. Where everyone agrees. I don't know about you, but I find that concept difficult in action. Not just in church, but in family life, in work life. Like consensus. If that's going to be our definition of unity, we're going to have a tough time. We're going to have a tough time. I have in my uh, life, whether it's work or at home, I've been in rooms where everyone seems excited about an idea... And then toward the end, one person will speak up in opposition. And whether it's out of an idea of unity, whether, it's, whether we're trying to calm one anxious person so the room can feel good, we cater to the one person who speaks up with the idea of unity. Well, if we're not all on board, we're not going to do it. Now, there might be appropriate times to do that, but that's not a really good way to do life. To let the tyranny of the extreme minority affect a decision and call that unity. But I've seen it happen where one person and their preferences rule the day. And we say, well, we're unified. And you might say, well, we shouldn't do that on um, little stuff. But on the big things, we should have unity, right? On the essentials. And I'm on board with you in theory on this. You may have heard the saying... It gets attributed to different people, all the way back to St. Augustine, to John Wesley. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That sounds great. I'm for it. Now, can someone tell me what the essentials are? Do we agree on that? (laughs) See, that's our next level problem. Who gets to say what the essentials are? Because if I put two of you in a room and ask you what the essentials are, my guess is you might not have the same answers. You say, well, the Bible says what the essentials are. Okay, I agree in theory with that. But every movement has different parts of its history. In in churches of Christ, we have defined essentials all the way from the deity of Christ down to whether or not you can have a kitchen in the church building or whether you can pay your local preacher. By the way, I hope we're all agreed on that last one. And every, every group's got those things. It's not just us. So even when we've tried to say what are the essentials about which we must agree, we sometimes run into trouble. That doesn't mean it's a useless quest. It just means it's not as easy as it sounds with this nice phrase, is it? So unity is not some form of unanimity or uniformity. It just can't be that because it never works out that way. But if we say unity is not letting one person run the show, it's also, though, not a silencing tactic to keep one person from voicing an opinion. Or, more than that, to keep one person from voicing a difficulty that's happened. Maybe 
talking about something that's happened in church. So some churches will use unity as a silencing tactic, as someone who maybe they've experienced misconduct or abuse or mistreatment, and they'll say, well, out of unity, don't say anything. That's not what Scripture teaches either. In the Corinthian church, uh, Paul becomes aware of someone who's engaging in sexual misconduct, and he doesn't tell the one who reported it to stop talking. He says, you better deal with this, and you better deal with it severely. So unity is not letting one person rule the day, but it's also not telling one person that you don't matter. Not either of those things. And if it's not either of those things, though, okay, what is it? What could unity be? There's a lot of things it's not. What might it be? And I've settled on thinking about unity as alignment and not agreement. And alignment in the church looks like alignment about the mission of Jesus. Jesus told us what unity is for, didn't he? It's to help others know who he is. That's that's the thing we align about. That's our mission. If nothing else, we can be unified in that mission. And the question we ask ourselves is, can we align even when we don't agree? Those aren't the same thing. In the Gospel of Mark... Jesus' disciples encounter a man who is casting out demons in Jesus' name. So he's testifying to who Jesus is. There's the mission. And his disciples say, we need to stop this guy. And Jesus says, no, don't stop him. Whoever is not against us is for us. This guy, whatever he's doing, is testifying to the identity of Jesus. So it's not our place to stop him. Or in the first century church, the Jews and the Gentiles coming together as new Christians... And they disagreed on many things. They disagreed on whether or not you could celebrate certain holidays that the Jews had been used to. Whether or not you could eat certain foods that the Jews had been used to eating. They disagreed on that. And they never came to a real agreement as far as a common practice. And so those who were Jewish Christians continued to follow those restrictions because it helped their consciences. And the Gentile Christians said, I never had those restrictions and I'm not about to start. They were aligned on the mission of teaching other people about Jesus. And they did not agree on some of these things. Paul didn't call them to agree on those things. Because of their common mission, they stayed together despite their disagreement. Now, I don't want to be the one to remind you of bad news, but we are less than a year away from another presidential election. And I've gotten to know most of you as much as I can. And I'm just going to tell you, there's people in this room who think diametrically different than you do. I know it. What are you going to do about that? Is it enough to share the mission of Jesus? I'm not suggesting that what we think about world affairs or politics doesn't matter. I have my own opinions. It matters. It's not that they're not important But I'm just not sure how much good it's going to do try to convince other people to think like I do anymore. You may know different people than I do. I don't know a whole lot of people who are undecided about these things at this point. Don't. Uh, So I'm going to continue to speak out of my convictions when it's appropriate. But I'm not sure trying to fix other people's worldview on these things is going to bear much fruit. And I, if you're one of these people who, who has 
maybe found yourself thinking, I don't understand how people who claim to follow Jesus can believe X or be okay with Y. I have sympathy for you. If you want to talk to a group of people who've been disillusioned about how Christianity has handled politics, get a group of ministers in a room and give them truth serum. We're just as surprised as some of you are. But we have Jesus in common, and we have to decide if that's enough. We have to decide if we can align on the mission of helping other people come to know Jesus despite these disagreements that I don't think are going away anytime soon. Is that enough for us? Can you imagine the impact? Can you imagine the impact in a divided world of a church who is so on mission about Jesus that it doesn't get distracted by all these other battles that show up? Can you imagine how attractive it would be for people who experience disagreement and discord six days a week to show up here and experience unity and harmony because we're aligned about Jesus? That's powerful. That's not common anymore. What if we were a place that began to live out this unity? And I say began to, that's not really fair because you are doing that. This church has remarkable unity with each other. I think, I wasn't here, but I'm grateful for how the leaders of this church weathered the past few years with all the chances for division and turmoil. So I shouldn't say began. That's not fair. What if we continued? What if we doubled down? What if we decide that, you know, the past year or two, we've been able to kind of pretend these divisions don't exist. They're going to pop up again. Are we going to handle them well? And what if we said, we will not let those things throw us off mission? Because those things aren't going to change. So we have to decide, can we align around the mission of Jesus, even when there are so many other disagreements we might have? So to close, I want to remind us of the scripture that Jeff read for us earlier, where Paul talks about all the things we have in common. And if we were going to make a list of essentials, perhaps we could start here. Where Paul tells the Ephesians, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And then he goes on to say, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What if we could say, I've been given so much grace that all these ones they're enough if we can align around the mission of Jesus with these ones in common imagine the effect the church could have on a very divided world let's be that church brothers and sisters let's stand and sing